0: Beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. If you're using the Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 1071. And if you're visiting us and you do not own a Bible or a good Bible, please take that as a gift from us. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. And in honor of God's holy word, please stand for the reading of God's word. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he, brought us, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we may be The first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. It is of paramount importance that you know the difference between real friends and fake friends. It is necessary to know the difference. It is good to have friendships. We are made for relationships. And as we build relationships with people, many will likely be true friends, but not all. There are some who will be friends, who will actually be foes disguised as friends. It's important for us to be able to discern who is who. And sometimes... The stakes are so high that it is of a matter of life and death. See, real friends, they love you for you. They care for you. They tell you what you need to hear. They are after your own good, and they do all of this because they love you. Whereas fake friends, enemies disguised as friends, what many will call frenemies, they are around you. They spend time with you. They're not seeking, they speak to you, but not with the intentions to build you up, but to gas you up. They desire to take from you. And inwardly, many of them are plotting your demise. They have no care for your life or the outcome of it. In fact, they are trying to help you in ending your life, they encourage wrongdoing. They don't care what happens to you. It is of paramount importance to know the difference. You know, even when you think about the story of Elvis, if you're very familiar with the story, then you're also aware of his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. You see, Colonel Tom was Elvis's manager. He was a foe disguised as a friend, he was using Elvis, taking money from Elvis deceiving Elvis. Elvis ruined his own life. But also know that Colonel Tom Parker was very complicit in the destruction of Elvis's life. Having him go on tours, back-to-back days, not much rest, Elvis is falling out. Colonel Tom Parker's the one who's telling doctors to pump some drugs into him that he may get on that stage. Not for Elvis to make money, but for Tom to make money. And when Elvis died, Tom was unfazed, careless, because he was a foe disguised as a friend. Beloved, it is so important for us to be able to tell the difference and to bring it home for us with this passage. But James is going to let us know is that our evil desires within, they are foes disguised as friends. They are enemies. They pretend to be for you, but in fact, they are your fatal foe. The question is, do you see your sinful desires for what they truly are? But James doesn't stop there. He begins to talk about God. And God, he is better than a friend. He is a good father, as we sung. He is always good and always loving. He is always for the good of his people. The question is, do you see him rightly? See, this text actually reminds us who is against, what is against us and who is is for us. So our big idea from this passage it is this. slay your sinful desires because your good father has made you new. slay your sinful desires because your good father has made you new. They have two points for us. They're words of exhortation. First point is, combat your deadly desires. Second, celebrate God's gracious generosity. Combat your deadly desires and celebrate God's gracious generosity first combat your deadly desires look at verse 13 James says no one undergoing a trial should say i am being tempted by god so James he seamlessly transitioned from talking about trials to talking about temptations now both words in the greek they have the very same root so what is the relationship between trials and temptations. Well, every external trial is accompanied with an internal temptation. Trials, they are external opposition and hardship. They have the tendency to push us back. Where temptations, they're internal. Dealing with the desires and the affections of your heart, and they have the the tendency to pull us in, drawing us to sin. Now, in this fallen world, we will encounter both trials and temptations under the sovereignty of God. Yet James prohibits us from blaming God for our temptations such wording would be false. God in his sovereignty, he permits trials for a particular purpose as we read in verses 2 through 4. He is using them to mature us to make us more and more like Jesus. And in the trial, he tests our love to see if we t- he tests us to see if we will love and obey him, like he did with Abraham in Genesis 22 like he did with Israel in the wilderness. But let's not get it twisted. God permits trials. God tests us to see that we, if we would love and obey him. But God by no means tempts us to sin against him. He is not trying to get us to rebel. And James, he begins to unpack this by appealing to God's character and his work. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil character. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Work. He says, God cannot be tempted by evil. And the very reason is because God is holy. God is holy. Holy. He is completely and perfectly set apart from all of creation. In his essence, he is absolute in moral purity. Beloved, there is not a plank of darkness in the nature of God. His very own name is holy. His holiness is so astounding and so amazing that holy angels... That if we see, we would be fearful, they are fearful of him. And in glory, they cover themselves in reverence because his glory is that transcendent. And they repeatedly declare to one another that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty and the earth is filled with his glory. What do angels emphasize the holiness of God? What theologian will say that the holiness of God is the foundation of his other virtues. Think about it. God's love is a holy love. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. His justice is holy. His judgments are holy. His wrath is holy. His will is holy. His works are holy. that God does not tempt us to sin. He doesn't want us to sin in any way. And those who know him know that God by no means tempts us. Is because he is holy and he doesn't tempt anyone. He allows temptation to happen, but he does not do the tempting. Temptation is a real problem, but the problem isn't found in God. It's found in us. James goes on in verse 14 and 15, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. James says that there is something intrinsically wrong with us. Humanity. He says each person, no exception. There's no footnote at the bottom, meaning except for me. All of us. He says we are drawn away and enticed by our own evil desire. And the Greek word for desire here is epithumia, which means lust. And so within humanity is evil, dark, vile, disgusting desires. Our hearts are not pure in and of ourselves. Instead, it is a deep, dark, black hole within ungodly desires. It's because we are sinners. Sin has corrupted us. When Adam, who God created, God created Adam to be perfect, placed him in the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and Adam chose to rebel, sin entered the world and it was imputed to all of humanity to where we are born corrupt. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, Human wickedness was widespread on the earth that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. We have a corrupt nature. We have corrupt desires. Therefore, we choose to sin. It is what we want. Think about little kids. No parent has to teach their children to disobey them. They do it instinctively. I know, I got three. Sweet kids, cute kids, and yet they're corrupt. They Do it instinctively. And contrary to popular opinion, The reality is, humanity is not good. Not even close. Robert Murray McShane would say it this way The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to 22. You think your heart is good? Look what Je- Listen to what Jesus has to say about human hearts. He says, for from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Our desires are vile, they are dark, and they are deadly. You won't hear this from pop culture. You won't hear this from modern psychology. They will tell you that your problem is everything else but you. It's not to say that there are other problems, because there is. But they will not tell you the truth about your heart. James is making known that your problem is you. It is within us. And beloved, this doesn't exonerate Satan, who we see is the tempter. This doesn't exonerate the world with this evil world system. In fact, James mentions both in James chapter 4. This doesn't absolve temptation coming through people. God will certainly deal with them as we see in the Gospels. Woe to you through whom temptation comes. But what James is saying here is that our problem with temptation is within. That our flesh and our fleshly desires, they are real enemies. And he goes on to use a fishing analogy to describe how we are tempted. Verse 14, he says, but each person is tempted when, so it will certainly come, when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Y'all, I'm not a fisherman. I've gone fishing a couple of times, though, especially when I was younger. And I, I know the procedure. You know, you go, you go to a body of water, you make sure you got your you know, your fishing rod, and one of the first things you do is you want to make sure you get some good bait. And what you do with that bait is you put it on the fish hook, and you cast that fishing hook, you cast that rod into the water, and then you just wait. And what happens is a the fish, they see the bait, And when they see it, their desire within them, they are roused by it. They see it as food. And so they are lured in. They are drawn to it. They go to it themselves. They grab the bait, not knowing that the hook is in there. And then they are hooked upon the line. They're trapped. And then the fisherman, he feels a pull, a little tug. And so what does he do? He begins to reel that thing in then we got something. The fish has been trapped. It is dragged away out of the water. Well, James says that that same thing happens to us when our sinful desires are aroused. You see, our sinful desires within, they are wicked to where we are magnetically drawn to sin. And then James, he goes on and switches the metaphor in verse 15. And commentary says that he begins to talk about this process of lust. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. See, that evil desire, it is first aroused And if we don't kill it, if we yield to it, when opportunity comes, sin is what happens. We rebel against God, fall short of his glorious standard, sin of all kinds. As Jesus mentioned in Mark chapter 7, sexual immorality, drunkenness, murder, stealing, quarreling. We give in to these desires, we commit these sins. And in the moment, it may feel good. It has lasting repercussions. Guilt, shame, pain, destroying one's own life and the lives of those around us. Beloved, sin does not give anything. It only takes. And not only that, sin is very deceptive. It convinces us. Our evil desires and sin is so deceptive that it convinces us that as we give into sin, it is giving us life. It is satisfying us. It is bringing us joy. When in actuality, it is destroying our souls, destroying our bodies and our lives. And he says that it begins with desire, it goes to action. And if it continues, it leads in death. It begins with the desire. You know, some people will say, man, I, I, I just fell into sin. Well, the reality is that's just not true. No one falls into sin. We walk into it. Compromise after compromise disobedience after disobedience. As KB said, the rapper, he says, every great fall is from a hundred bad decisions. Little minor ones. Causes a great fall to where you look back and like, what have I done? Trace the steps. It is small decision after small decision. Starts with the desires, going in actions, and if it is not killed. If our sin is not killed, it has a life on its own and it leads to death. Spiritual and eternal death. This is the aim of every evil desire. This is where it wants to take us. See as I said, it is a Fatal foe disguised as a friend. Do we see it as deadly as it truly is? Evil desires. Or do we belittle it? Every lust is deadly. Every sinful desire is deadly. Even the quote-unquote smallest of ones. We cannot be casual or cavalier with sin and temptation. It baffles me that people try to do that, myself included. Like, man, we cannot be cavalier or casual about it because it's not cavalier or casual about it with us. It makes no sense at all to befriend or try to manage sin and temptation especially when it is out to get us. Beloved, in both lusts and sins, they are not pets needing to be trained, but they are enemies needing to be killed. You know, that's why it just blows my mind when I hear some people talk about uh, the kind of pets that they have, and the pet in particular, when people say, man, I got a pet snake. I'm like, what? A pet snake? Not a dog, not a cat, not a little hamster, but a snake. I'm like, man, you and that snake ain't on the same page. Like, for real, you may see that snake as your pet, but it certainly don't see you as its owner. It sees you as its enemy. And at an opportune time, it will certainly strike seeking to kill you. And sin is the exact same way. Our deadly desires are no different. It is why we must crucify our flesh with his passions and desires, as Paul exhorted in Galatians 5. Beloved, the question for us to consider is, do we truly view our desires within us As enemies? Do we see them as deadly as they truly are? Because they are. See, we need to slay them, not coddle them. We need to put them to death. And the only reason why you and I can We who are in Christ, the only reason why we can is because of Jesus Christ, the very Son, the eternal begotten Son who became man. He is one person with two two natures. He is truly God and truly man. He came to save us. He overcame and succeeded in every area where man has failed. You see, in the garden, as I mentioned earlier, Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Adam rebelled with Jesus. He is the second Adam. He was tempted in the wilderness. In his humanity, he was tempted. And he overcame. His temptation is not like ours because Jesus don't have evil desires within. He is without sin. He was tempted as a perfect man just like Adam. Adam was perfect in the garden, and Adam chose to rebel. Jesus was and is perfect, and in the wilderness, he chose to resist Satan's temptations and obey the Father because he loved the Father. His will was to do the will of the Father. And so, out of a love for him, he obeyed. Defeating Satan there, giving a foreshadow of what he would do on the cross where he defeated Satan's sin and death. His perfect obedience was all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, shedding his blood for the sins of those who he will save, being buried in a tomb and then on that third day defeating Satan, sin, and the grave, forgiving all those who would trust in him, delivering us from sin's dominion and giving us eternal life by the grace of God because of God's love for us in Christ. Friends, if you are here, you know yourself to not be a Christian. I am glad that you are here. And you can definitely attest to this, but there is something intrinsically wrong with humanity, yourself included. We have evil desires. Who created the dark web? Man. And the problem isn't just everyone else. Those same desires are also within you. If you are honest with yourself, you constantly do things that you don't like, that you say that you wouldn't dare do. And the problem is because of sin. And you can't save yourself. You can't change your heart. But God can. And in his love, he sent his son to save sinners. He gave us Jesus and poured his wrath out on Jesus. And three days later, Jesus rose and he gives life to all who would trust in him. Friends, I would implore you this very day trust in Jesus Christ he can and will change you just as he has done for all who have trusted in him if you want you can talk more after service beloved our only hope is Jesus the savior the one in whom salvation is in And when he died and God has united us to him through faith in Jesus, his saving work has truly freed us from being enslaved to sin. So we can now fight our deadly desires and turn away. And we must. We have to fight because those desires still dwell within us. We are freed from sin's imprisonment but we have not been freed from its presence. Because of Jesus' saving work, we are dead to sin, and because we live in this body of flesh, sin is still alive in us. And so what are we to do? How do we relate to sin now? We slay it by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says, it is by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. In the book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is a war that we are to rage and there is no neutrality. So we got to kill it by the grace of God. So what does that look like? Well, one, we turn away from the actions, the very act of sin itself. We are turning away and we cut off the access to sin. Whether it's getting covenant eyes, that's getting a dumb phone, changing your job. You're doing what you can to get rid of your access towards it because you don't want to sin against God. But if we only do that, that wouldn't be enough. Because where does James begin with it? James says that our issue with sin doesn't begin with the action. To only deal with the action is just mowing over a weed. James says that you are tempted because you are lured and enticed by your own evil desires. And so we have to make war against our sinful affections. Beloved, we have to resist those deadly desires, resist our flesh and feed our faith with God's word. Meditating on scripture, beholding the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, his love and his grace, constantly feeding and nourishing our souls by reading the word. We must also draw near to God in prayer because we have a sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in every way and yet without sin, and he is willing and eager to help those who are being tempted. We draw near to God. We draw near to one another. Our fight against sin, it is a community project where we confess our sins, we confess our temptations to one another, pleading and begging for each other to help us because the goal is that we may obey Jesus. Jesus. in this fight we wage war daily our evil desires take no days off and how much more should we not take any days off it's a daily battle you know when you think about temptation beloved it is it's like a boomerang you know it it comes your way and if you are pursuing the spiritual disciplines by God's grace you see it, you can you evade it, you resist it. God gives grace, you endure. But what does a boomerang do? Comes right back. And that's why we have to remain vigilant. It's not a one-time fight. It's not 12 rounds. It is every day. We are fighting for joy, fighting for our love and trust in Jesus to abound. We want to follow him because he is worthy. And his gospel is so powerful that you truly can resist. His grace is so efficient that you can be made strong in your weakness. And the joy that he offers in obedience is so amazing. Jesus says that I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and we experience that fullness of joy as we abide in Christ. Beloved, as temptation comes, how are we to respond? We read how Jesus responded. And he did that as a man. In every response to the temptation he encountered from Satan, he said, It is written. He quoted the Bible. The Scripture says that God's Word is a sword of the Spirit. Beloved, if we're going to fight sin, if we're going to resist temptation, then we need to be in the Word. God has a Word for every one of flaming darts that Satan would throw. You, you're desiring pleasure? You're tempted to give in, you got to remember Psalm 16:11. That you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's right. If you're tempted, thinking that God is a killjoy, remember Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10. I have came life that they may have it and have it abundantly. Right. We need to be hiding God's word in our heart. That we may truly combat these deadly desires. So, beloved, how are you doing? How are you doing with slaying your deadly desires? Jesus is worth it, He truly is. And even now, you know what He's doing at the right hand of the Father? He is interceding on our behalf. He is our advocate. And when we sin, he's like, hey, he shed his blood for that. And because he has saved us, we do not have the license to continue in sin. He has saved us for a very purpose, freeing us from its dominion. May we live as those who've been set free by the grace of God. So we're to combat our deadly desires. We're also to celebrate God's gracious generosity. My first point was my longest point. I guarantee the second point won't be as long. Verse 16 and 17, he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James is being pastoral here. Expressed his affections for these people, this church. And exhorts us to guard ourselves against deception. Whether that's the deadly desires he talked about or believing lies about God. Either way, we need to heed this instruction. The only way we're going to heed it is if we remain in the word. Because God's Word is the source of truth. It tells us about ourselves, our sinful desires, and it also tells us about God, His grace, His compassion, His goodness towards us. So we need to remain in the Word, and we do this in our personal time. We do this as a fa- when you join a faithful church in the context of community. As we do this, it protects us from deception, and James begins to unpack God's character and his works. He says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights. James said, Don't get it twisted, y'all. God is a good God. He is the only true good. He's the only source of good. It says every gift, physical and spiritual, you name it life, sustenance, provision, friendships, food, forgiveness, redemption, salvation, the Holy Spirit, all of it comes from the same source God Himself. He gives good gifts. as he gives good gifts, it testifies about him. The gifts are great. If the gifts are great, then how much greater is the giver? You know, I'm not really into plays, but I did love the the play Hamilton. Super dope play. Saw it live in New York and just blown away by it. Like It is amazing as it details the story of Alexander Hamilton and his role in the foundation of our country. It is amazing, and when the show ends, everybody is clapping. And then when the stars come out, the actors, what do they do? They give an ovation. Can you imagine being there and seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda play Alexander Hamilton? You would give him a huge ovation, and why? Because he's the composer of that play. The very thing that you enjoyed, it is his work. Beloved, James is saying the very good gifts that we enjoy, they come from God. It is his work. It is his kindness. It is his goodness. It is his generosity towards us. They testify to his generosity, his abundant kindness. If we enjoy the gift, then we should extol the gift giver. And the way you extol is with gratitude as we sung, Oh, give thanks. Beloved, how are you responding to God's generosity towards you? It can be easy for us to reserve thanksgiving for the big things that God does, whether it's a promotion or a relationship or a spouse or pregnancy or a big move. It can be easy for us to only give thanks in that and ignore the daily kindness of God. And as we do that, what that exposes is some sort of entitlement within us. That in our pride, we have forgotten what we truly deserve. Judgment. We're to be a grateful people, and here's the secret sauce to remaining in a constant state of gratitude. Rehearse the good news of Jesus Christ. Because in that good news, you are constantly reminded that you are extremely sinful and you are deserving judgment. And yet in Christ, you get him and all the blessings that are in him. It is as we rehearse the gospel that we say anything besides my death is a gift. And not just that, we get the Savior King. And so we rejoice. James goes on to talk about the immutability of God, how he is unchanging. He says they are coming down from the Father of lights who does not change. In In Christ, God is our Father, and he is a good, good Father. He loves us dearly, and he gives very good gifts towards us. The Father of lights here is likely referring to creation, how on that day when He created the sun and the moon, He is light in within Himself. That unlike the moon, unlike those lights, they change in color, pending on the time of the day and stuff like that. But well, God doesn't change at all. He is unchanging. He is steadfast. He is faithful. He is this way in his essence. It is not on occasions. It is all the time. You know, my wife, she's been trying to teach our kids about um, the attributes of God. and She's using the ABCs of God's attributes that tiny theologians have produced. A number of weeks ago, she was teaching them that God is unchanging. Coming from Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. It says, because I, the Lord, have not changed. And so she was teaching them a song, trying to help them understand that God is unchanging. And she has like a call and response. She says this, and they are to repeat after him, after her, not him. And so she's like, God is unchanging. I'm not going to sing it. My voice is going crazy. But she's like, God is unchanging, and they repeat it. And then she said, God is unchanging, and they repeat it. It says, every day he is the same. Every day he is the same. God is unchanging. They repeated, God is unchanging. They repeated, his character, it will remain. And they say, his character, it will remain. Trying to teach them that we grow, God doesn't. We change, God doesn't. God is always who he is. So he's always loving, he's always righteous, he's always good, he's always kind, and he is that way all the time. It's like what the saints of old used to say in the church, God is good, and all the time God is unchanging. And so you never have to wonder, which God will I get today? And to make it even more personal for you. Because God is unchanging. He loves you and he always will. He always has before the foundation of the world. And he will not stop. He never started. James, I'm packing the good gifts that God gives. And then he begins to talk about the greatest gift. Verse 18, it says, By his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we may be a kind of firstfruits. This is getting at our salvation, which is entirely a work of God's grace. It was according to his eternal plan that he has purposed. Of his gracious will, he chose to save sinners like you and I, and he gave us birth. That language is intended for us to think about John chapter 3. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus that you need to be born again. Be born of water and the Spirit. And this gracious regeneration is entirely a work of God. He calls us to be born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the word of truth. The content is about Christ, his death and resurrection. God in his sovereign will has willed for us to hear that most glorious message and when we did at an appointed time of his choosing by the spirit of God he brought about a spiritual resurrection. We went from death to death To life, he began to open our ears from deaf to hearing. He opened our eyes from blind to sight, gave us the gift of faith, and we chose to believe in Jesus because we saw Jesus in his glory and his beauty. We couldn't help it. That's according to God's gracious work in us. He did this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone's is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God has made us new. Behold, the grace of God. Being a new creation, that is grace towards us in Christ. And he was gracious for a purpose. He says, so that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And the Jews, they were familiar with first fruits back then. Very familiar, being an agricultural society. You know, in, in one season they sow, and in another season they reap. And the first fruits are the first portion of the harvest that they were commanded to devote to God in reverence to Him. That first fruit is viewed as holy. And so how are we believers, the first fruits? Well, it's not of creation, because humanity was the last thing created, created on the sixth day. This is in reference to salvation, where humanity is the first to get to experience it, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. We're the first fruits of redemption and salvation. When we trust in Jesus, you see, behold, beloved, God's redemption has a cosmic scope. He will redeem all of creation. And it begins with human beings, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. We who have trusted in Jesus, we are the first fruits of the new creation, of salvation. And just as the first fruits are holy, so are we to be, because He has made us new. We get to be a preview before creation of the world that is to come. Because Christ has made us new, we're to be a people who walk in holiness. We're to be a people who resist sin. We're to be a people who walk in love because God's kingdom is marked by love. We have the Holy Spirit within us, and so we're to bear the fruit of the Spirit which that very fruit will be evident in the new creation that is freed from sin. But we get to serve as a preview of the coming age the church gets to. God has been gracious towards us, and in response towards his grace, we are to adore him. We are to give thanks to him. We are to celebrate this kindness by stewarding well our salvation, living entirely for him because we beheld his love for us in Christ. Being grateful in light of his saving work. Knowing that he has shown light in our hearts and he has given us light, I mean given us life and so we love him. And Part of living as new creations, is that we we work to put to death the old. Seeing that he has saved us for a purpose, he's been gracious. We live for him alone. The hymn writer says it this way. He says, in response to the grace of God, help me now to live a life. That's depended on your grace. Keep my heart and guide my soul from the evil that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. If we want God's name to be glorified through us, then we are to live as the new creations He has made us. Let's pray.